the magician's code. Welcome back to The Magician's Code, everybody. My name is Hadlin, and on this episode, we're going to dive into the mind of an amazing mentalist magician from the United States. His name is Paul Draper. He has performed for the likes of Disney, for Apple, some really large Fortune 500 companies, and he does this monthly newsletter of mental mysteries. His Patreon, which he just launched recently, has in my mind, exploded, and he's doing amazing things. So without further ado, let's dive into the mind of Paul Draper. How's it going, man? Hey, so much, so great to be on here. Thanks for including me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming out. And yeah, you're just one of these guys who has so much advice and so much knowledge and so much experience that to learn from you is, is an honor. So thank you for that. Let's... Uh, Maybe start more recently, you've been able to really transition to this online thing better than anyone I've ever seen. What was your thought process behind all of this? That's a great question. I was stressed at first. It was terrifying what was going on for me because I have to take care of two other human beings uh, in my life who, who are not able to work. And I also like to give a lot of money to charity. And so it was very important to me that I transition and pivot very quickly in order to respond to all of this that's happening. So step one for me was to uh, set up that Patreon page. Oh, it looks like I lost you. Oh, no, we oh. just changed the spotlight. Yeah, th uh, sorry. That, that just makes it easier for me to see you. Should I switch it back? No, no, no. That's fine. Okay. And so I immediately... Uh, I immediately uh, went and created the Patreon page, which uh, I was able to get 50 followers uh, very quickly. Uh, from that, I tried to get corporate work. The corporate work was harder to get. Uh, and so I looked at it and said, where is the real need in the world right now? Where's the real need? And the real need to me is millions of children at home. And by millions of children, I mean, you're in Canada, but if we just look at the United States, uh, there are 80 million school-aged children, age 5 to 18, who are now at home. And of those 80 million children in the United States alone, there are 200,000 of them celebrating their birthday every single day, today, tomorrow, yesterday, the next day. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, this is a need. This is something where uh, people right now need a way to engage and entertain these children. And so, um, yeah, and so I, I tried to very quickly uh, come up with a solution to, to uh, fulfill the needs of these children. And, and I've al already performed for kids in Canada, in England, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Israel. And so when we're talking about that 80 million where I'm at, there are hundreds of millions of children everywhere who are having their birthday parties every day without a magic show. Wow. Wow. You, you were able to find and fill a need. That is an incredible. And I, I just want to first off, thank you for, for that, because we need more people like you in the world. And I think that's something very important for entertainers to do is, you know, start, start helping out as much as we possibly can. Cause that's essentially what we're, 
what we're in, on in the, the world to do is to, to help people. Now, Paul, can you talk a little bit about, because I know you're, you've done cruise ships, you've done so many right. big, big events and whatnot. What type of advice would you give somebody before they even think about that as a, as a venture, as an opportunity? I had a friend of mine who was an uh, internationally ranked chess player. And I said to him I was interested in uh, becoming a better chess player. And he looked me in the eye in a very dull sort of way and said, is there anything in the world you love more than chess? And I said, yes, lots of things. There are lots of things I love more than chess. And he said, then do those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because for him, for him to become an internationally ranked chess player, chess has to be an all-consuming thing. In the same way that the advice everyone gives, and it's rude, but it's true, if there are things that you love more than magic, do magic as a hobby. Love magic, enjoy magic. Uh, but if you want to become a professional, uh, you have to put up with a lot of horrible things and deal with a lot of horrible things and, and fight endlessly and, and get endless rejection and still wake up and say, it's worth it. I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to keep battling for this. Yes. Now, if you have decided, yes, that's you. Uh, the big note I can give here to start with is so many people say they, they grow up and they, they have a misconception of what being a professional entertainer is going to look like. When they were in high school and they were in college plays, the high school teacher looked at the very small number of students available to them. They chose a play that was correct to cast as many of those students as possible and then put on that play and cast from that group of students. Yes. That's a wonderful experience. And a lot of magicians leave that experience and go out into the real world and say, all right, where is that director who's going to choose the play that I'm right for and is going to cast me in it and tell me what costume to wear and tell me what tricks to do and tell me what lines to say and they'll pay for the stage and they'll pay for the lighting and they'll advertise to get the audience in because I'm a magician and I'm ready. Right. And that is not how it works at all. Uh, if you are going to be a full-time magician, you are director-in-chief, you are salesperson-in-chief, you are the costumer, you are the writer, you are the director, you are the marketing person, you mm -hmm. are uh, every piece of that. And there, there isn't a manager or an agent alive who will be better at selling your show than you are. So think about that. Yeah. Uh, however good you are at selling your show, boom. Is how far that, you'll that's be. the bar. Yeah. Uh, you can get an agent or a manager who is slightly less good than you, mm. but you will never get one as good as you are. And so... Uh, that uh, becomes an all-consuming piece is you have to build a show that fulfills a need for an audience that has money. Uh, and then you have to build the marketing to sell that show to them. Yes. Now, one of the conversations I've been having recently is that, you know, as professional entertainers, we often will speak with our clients and we're like, okay, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you hire a professional and pay a professional rate, but then we'll go off and, and, and do a lot of, of the business on our own, 
by ourselves and not hire it out. But then, so what are your thoughts on that? Cause you're saying, you know, managers won't be able to sell you as well, but like, where's the line, I guess, is what I'm asking. Cause we, oh, we can hire a marketer and so much work. If you are booking yourself already, your show is so good and you are successfully booking yourself from so much work that you no longer have the personal hours available to, to sell your show. Uh, that's when you need to hire other people to sell your show. When mm. you are making so much money that losing 20% of what you're currently earning uh, or up to 50% of what you're currently earning because a good manager takes 20%, a good agent takes 15%, a good destination management company takes 10% and so on and so on. So you're saying I am making so much money that to give up 50% of my income, I don't even notice it because it helps me. Hmm. Uh, that's when you need those other people. Now I do hire comedy writers to give me an hour of their time or directors to give me two or three hours of their time. Or even in my zoom shows I'm doing right now, I hire a stage manager and pay that individual per half hour they work with me. So there are you on know, higher costumers than that, but you have to be on your own making enough money. Uh, no one is going to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I've had my, my eggs and Turkey bacon uh, now uh, I need to get you work. That's, that is my all consuming goal. No one is waking up each day and saying, I need to get Paul Draper work. That is my job. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good, very, very good information. You, you always want to make sure that, you know, cause no one's going to work as hard as you for your own dream. If it's not their that's dream, correct. you know, if you're it, an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur uh, means having an entrepreneurial mindset where you are the one looking at the market and you are the one fulfilling the needs. If instead you want to be an artist, uh, what do artists do? Artists create their artwork and they get little booths at art festivals and they stand there and hope someone will buy their painting. Mm -hmm. So when you are performing, mm -hmm. what is your process when you're done performing? when you review your footage and you, uh, and you build upon your show? Great question. So I just finished a show in this online venue uh, about, uh, what, 28 minutes ago. Uh, so my process, my first process is I get on with the stage manager who I hired to look at the show and I give him, get him to give me notes from what his perspective is. Okay. Uh, and he has great perspective because he's seen the show over and over again, but he can't give me magical perspective. So then I record those shows and I'll look at them for my own, my own flaws, foibles, what I'd like to see happen. Uh, when I'm early, in the early stages of a show, I then hire someone on Fiverr to transcribe the show oh. uh, so that I can have that scripting and look at that and tighten the scripting. I then will hire people, comedy writers or different people like uh, Bob Fitch, uh, the Broadway actor to, to look at that footage and review it and give me notes from a theatrical perspective. I will perform pieces of that show for non magicians and ask them their thoughts. One of the pieces that every, after every performance I'm doing in this venue, uh, the family who hires me gets a questionnaire where I ask them, what was everybody's favorite effect? What did they like? Do you have anything you'd like to see more of? 
Rick Thomas had the great note for me years ago where he would pass out surveys to audiences for a while. Oh. And what he was looking for was where statistically everything was average, that every trick was somebody's favorite, that there wasn't one thing that stood out as the unquestionable best. Because if you have it where you ask people to rank things, you know, one to 10, and every trick in your show is someone's favorite and everything in your show is somebody's least favorite, you're doing a good job. Yeah, that's, those are, there's a lot of great information there too. Like I never would have thought to go to Fiverr and have someone transcribe it. And now right. you have, now you have it on paper right in front of you to, to look at in a tangible way. That's, that's incredible. And wow, your process has been refined over years. I'm sure I, in the early stages, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it wasn't this refined. Oh, sure, sure. You find each piece as you mm. go along, but it's always, it, it, I've always taken the stance of the, of the uh, actor, director, stage manager, um, because, because that's what I came from. That's what I knew. And so I needed a script and a set and costumes and lighting and the props mm. and the uh, house and the crew and the, you know, advisors and all of that. And there are some people you can right now is a perfect time because right now, uh, while we're in this pandemic, people are available. You can hire anybody. You can hire any expert magician in the world and they will give you feedback. Uh, I have a dozen people that are currently working with me. And, and my deal is, is it's $150 an hour or 75 bucks an hour if you buy four hours. So, wow, that's amazing. But I know. Luna Shimada, Bruce Gold, Bob Fitch, Jeff McBride, um, all of these people are currently offering consulting online. Wow. That's incredible. Everyone, you know, this that's the move to go. Now, just before the podcast started, you had mentioned that your vocal range was around where mine is. Yeah. What do you mean you 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 raised your pitch or your vocal yeah, range? Great question. You know that's uh, something I haven't shared very often, but uh, the truth is we have a choice over how we sound, um, and and if you want your vocal range to be lower, you can talk in that Eugene Berger range, <laughs> or you can be Max Maven. Max Maven is very particular in the way he speaks. Had I felt it required more words, I would have utilized them, right? And whatever range we speak in, we can continue to push that. And a good singer will have multiple octaves of range. We also choose if we want the resonance of the deeper voice, or if we want the warm uh, uh, flittering of the higher voice. It, hmm. it's, it would be easier to be, you know, it's easy to go into those ranges of, Walk like a man, talk like a man, or, or Tiny Tim's tiptoe through the tulips, right? We have, this is our instrument. And most magicians think that our digits, our prestidigitation, are our only instrument, and that's all they think about. But we have to think about our body as our instrument, our vocal cords as our instrument. Our, we, we have to cut the strings under our arms to have the full arm not just this tight, watch my hands right here. Right. All of them are our tool and our instrument. 
right? And then the the volume at which you present that, whether you, right. you know, bring it down you, to a whisper. I'm using or, a microphone attached to my body right here. Earlier today, I was using one that was at the computer. If I was performing on stage, right now the volume I'm using is the volume of a crooner. When we look at um, Robbie Benson, who played the Beast in Beauty and the Beast uh, and taught at the University of Utah in the, in the town where I grew up, and he said when he auditioned for Beast in Beauty and the Beast, uh, everyone else was a stage actor. And when they would roar as the Beast, they would roar in this huge sound that would fill the room, wow. but would blow out the microphone and was unusable. He knew that even though the casting director was there in the room, that there were a dozen other casting people that would be listening to that recording on the microphone. So when he did it, if you listen to him roar when you go to Beauty and the Beast again, he says, fine, you can starve. It's not allowed. It's, it's, too, it's a growl to the microphone. Hmm. That's so cool. That's, now, you grew up in Utah, you said? I did. What was the magic community like there growing up? Well, we had a wholesale shop, Loftus International, that makes most of the plastic gags and rubber chickens you've seen in your life. Oh, yeah. We had a retail store, Showplace Magic and Novelty. Uh, I didn't know it, but we had a IBM ring, uh, the Wilfred Hingston ring, now the um, Lennon Thalia Swinger ring. And it had members like Dave Goodsell, who was the past president of the Society of American Magicians and the editor of Mum Magazine, and his wife, Jan Goodsell, who also is a past president of the Society of American Magicians. It now has Richard Hatch, who used to own H&R Magic Books. Uh, it had professional magicians like Christopher Fair, Magic with a Flair, the original court jester from Disneyland. It had wow. Paul Brewer, who at one point had his own theater in Korea. Uh, and, uh, and Dan Paulus was the corporate magician when I was here growing up. Before me, there was John Rock, the brother of Will Rock, who had purchased the Thurston show, who had uh, been given the Keller show. Uh, and there is some argument. Hold on, can you? Thurston's protege was Dante, but uh, Will Rock bought some of the things from Thurston's daughter, Jane, and toured as the Thurston show. But yeah, John Rock was here in Salt Lake City before I was here. So there... There was a magic scene here, and hmm. uh, Vegas was a short seven-hour drive away. <laughs> so I visited Las Vegas 11 times before I moved to Vegas. Wow. Now, this, this Thurston story here, I've never heard anything about this. What, what, what is that about? So, so the great magician Keller, he passed the mantle to Thurston. Okay. Thurston, his protege, was Dante. Uh, who, uh, if we remember, Irene Larson of the Larson family that owns the Magic Castle. She was a dancer for the Dante show. Uh, and, uh, but after Thurston died, some of his illusions were sold by his daughter to Will Rock. Okay. Uh, and then Will Rock also bought some of the illusions from his brother uh, and, uh, and then toured with that show. And it was the great Thurston show starring Will Rock. And then Will Rock's brother, John, married one of the dancers from the show, moved to Utah and continued to perform. Oh, wow. Wow. That is so much history. So much history. And I have some of John Rock's uh, magic here in the room with me. Excellent. But, and who knows? <laughs> do, do you use those? Uh, do you perform that magic in some of these shows here? 
I have started to. I have yeah. not toured with them, but I've started to. Yes, yeah. uh, John Rock's son, John Rock Jr., just passed last week. But uh, I was able to spend some time with him. He came, saw my shows at Mystique Dining and at a theater in Rupert, Idaho, that I had a sold-out show. And, wow. Yeah, made those connections. I'm sorry to hear that. That's that's it's never nice to to go through a loss. What was uh, What's your favorite story about him? You know, again, John Rock Jr., uh, I only interacted with him about half a dozen times. You know, he was just full of life and nice. He wanted to recount his father's magic. He, he brought out these props to me that he didn't know what they, you know, some of them uh, didn't remember what they did. And so being able to take passe passe bottles or a flip over box or a seance hand, uh, multiplying billiard balls, uh, shelled coin, and immediately perform with all of these things uh, and perform right there at the table for him and his family with his father's props. Uh, it was quite delightful for him. Well, wow. then I had uh, him and and his sisters ask the other family members if there was anyone in the family that wanted these props, and they wanted me to have them and wanted me to perform with them. So I love it. Offered to sell them and uh, give them the money, and they said they had enough money, and mm-hmm. so that was that. Wow, that's inc- incredible. Thank you very much for sharing that. Yeah. Now, Paul, as you, you would call yourself more of a mentalist, but still a magician, right? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, mentalism in today's world is a branch of the world of magic. Yeah. Now, certainly uh, at some point, mentalism was a branch of uh, con artists. But even, but even then, even then, when we look back to, to the origins of mentalism, uh, we, it's, you know, religion and con artists, but it's magicians who took it and created uh, the shows out of it. Uh, in more recent years, mentalism and mental magic have become a bigger part of the magic community as more magicians have access to the tools of mentalism and are using those skills. Going back into this venue, into the web broadcasts and television, it's it's certainly easier when you don't have one-on-one interactions with people to do magic that is mentalism and deciding I'm not going to hide from the fact that I worked in a magic shop as a boy. My original webpage was realmagic.org. Uh, my original business card said real magic Paul Draper, right? Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and so, uh, yes, I, I uh, in the same way that Eugene Berger was always confused when people called him only a bizarrist, he wrote the spiritualism book and strange ceremonies. Uh, and the one VHS tape, but everything else was close-up magic, you know, and he was a magician. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yes, I see mentalism as a branch within magic, and uh, so far to date, that has kept me out of the PEA. I love it. I love it. Now, with magic, one of the, you know, a lot of lay people say magic isn't real and whatnot. What, what do you respond to them with? Oh, wonder is real. Surprise is real. Um, delight is real. Uh, seeing something that we don't know how it's done and suddenly our minds open up and are ready for new information because the universe is bigger than we thought it was is real. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if we don't believe in these things, then we're not a magician, we're a juggler. 
uh, and not saying jugglers are bad, but but if we are not eliciting surprise and wonder and joy and theater, then we are just juggling objects around in our hands and showing off optical illusions and puzzles. Right. Right. I like that. Now, with magic as well, what would you say your definition of it is? Well, magic doesn't happen in my hands. Magic, ha and it doesn't happen in my mind. Though to be a successful actor playing the role of a magician, I have to pretend that it is happening in my mind. But it's actually happening in the mind of the observer. And it is my goal to create an environment within which it is possible for that magic to exist between us and to spark in their consciousness. And so that's, that's my definition of magic is eliciting surprise, wonder, awe, delight in, in the mind of the other and to experience that myself in as real a way as I can in order to facilitate the creation of that magical moment in their consciousness. Amazing. Amazing. Uh that's probably one of the best definitions of magic I've heard to date. Well, I, I did study and, and was a board member of the Society of the Anthropology of Consciousness worldwide. So I, so I do uh, think about that in a deep way. Mm -hmm. Very, very much grateful for you sharing that with us today, Paul. Now, in your regular day-to-day, -day, where do you draw inspiration for your new presentations? Oh, there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. It, being engaged and interesting and interested in everything. I mean, uh, I, am, I watch a lot of films. I read a lot of books. I read the news. I'm aware of the world wherever I travel, when we travel. Uh, I go to zoos, museums, art galleries, theme parks, uh, cultural centers, you know, these are my places, the folklores and folktales or traditions, archaeology, anthropology, marine archaeology, um, uh, theatrical shows, musical theater shows. Mm -hmm. uh, these are my springboards. You know, there's a, there's a piece of magic that I'm doing in the show right now where I say, uh, how many of you have heard the story of Aladdin? Well, Aladdin comes from Scheherazade and her tales that kept her alive. There was a king that wanted to kill her. And he said that he would let her live another night as long as she told him a story that he liked. And night after night, she continued these stories. And there was a story of Aladdin. How many of you have heard of Aladdin? Right. You've seen the Disney movie? Well, Aladdin, he's Persian. He's in Acrobat. But the actual story starts a young Chinese boy named Aladdin. And so this is my magic carpet made out of bamboo. And then I go on. Yeah. And it's not appropriation because I'm not stealing from an actual culture, actual society. I'm instead talking about that story historically and where it is. I, I then don't go yellow face and I don't, you know, stretch my <laughs> eyes out. Yeah. But I can talk about it as in an academic way. Right. Another one I have is I say I was working at the Native American Center at the Smithsonian, and we found a pre-Columbian vessel 
that they didn't know what it was used for. And I realized that it was an ancient piece of magic. I had it recreated out of clay, and I'm going to share with you this ancient piece of magic wow. that was performed by the indigenous people on this continent thousands of years ago. Boom. Wow. And so, so I pull my inspiration from everywhere. Yeah, you just, you're keeping your mind and your eyes, your ears open to just receive these different stories. And then you think about how you can present them in your, in your shows. How much of your show is storytelling? People, or maybe I should rephrase it as how important um, is storytelling? So much story in today's world. Uh, With TikTok right now, you have to earn the story. But humans are symbol-bearing creatures. That's what we got. That's what we do. We are willing to fight and go to war and battle and die over symbols. And we manipulate symbols to create language and to create story and to create meaning. And this is my symbol for my religion and my symbol for my country. And, and what does this mean? Right. And so I would say that my show is more symbolic uh, than story-driven. Uh, and right now in the online form, uh, my show, this show, is very much a, and now I show you the magic shop kind of a show because I'm trying to keep up the clip and the pace in a 30-minute performance. Right. In a theatrical stage show where they come to see you as the performer and they have dedicated their evening and they show up and they're sitting there and they're watching you and you're on stage and they are prepared to give you two hours. Well, that show is storytelling. That show is two hours with maybe 10 effects in it. And, and so that is a different venue. Jeff McBride has this great line of the differences between thinking audiences and drinking audiences. Mm. A thinking audience is facing you. They are there to remember and to learn. A drinking audience is sitting uh, at 10 top tables facing each other. Where only a third of the room or a fourth of the room is facing you. Everyone else is facing each other. Have they their back to you? And and they're there to forget. They're there just or at a dance club if you're doing magic. They're there to forget and just have fun. Mm-hmm. Thinking audiences will allow more story. Drinking audiences will allow less story. Performing for children is like performing for a drinking audience. <laughs> Yeah, when when adults have drinks, it's it's just like perform for a kid. You can you can get away with so much. (laughs) In your in your corporate gigs, then if you have a ten top table, do you request from your client to not have those styles of tables, or do you? I apologize, I couldn't hear you. Say again. So at a corporate event, if if that's the seating that they're going to have at ten top table. Will you request the client to change the seating arrangement? Oh, I love that if it's possible. You know, I'm not, how do I put it? Again, I see myself as someone who's fulfilling the needs of others. So my primary goal is to fulfill the need of the client. It is my desire to say, okay, it is now time for the show. Everybody pick up your chairs bring them up to the stage, let's form an audience so that we're all close together and tight and uh, uh, sharing, uh, sharing space and sharing the theatrical sense. Uh, but I'm not going to force that. Right. And, and right now, if people want to sit 
20 feet apart, yeah. I'm going to let them do that, right? Uh, it's not about me and what I want. It's about fulfilling the needs of the client. I am happy to advise yes. what I think will create a better show given the audience and the environment. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to require that. I'm going to make myself fit their space and change my show to give the best show possible for the theatrical space that I've been provided. Love it. Absolutely love it. What is your favorite magic moment outside of the magic industry? This magic moment. What's my favorite magic moment? Where did you say? Outside of the magic industry. So not, not like a magic show, but maybe, maybe it was on TV. Maybe it was a, a different theatrical performance. Yeah, it's a good question. I find, uh, I find a lot of joy in uh, watching people. And so you, you don't become an actor without watching people. You don't become a, a, an anthropologist without watching people. And I think Alexander, the man who knows, really got it right in that poster of his where there's the skeletal hand holding the crystal ball. And it says, from birth to marriage to the grave, right? From the cradle to the grave. And they're the images of a family mourning and a family give, with a baby and a family at marriage. And it's about life cycle. It's about people celebrating births and mourning deaths and celebrating weddings and celebrating Passover or Easter or Ramadan and coming together for, in a search for meaning, the human search for meaning and, and belonging. And, um, and so my favorite moments are watching people come together to celebrate or mourn, even mourning, seeing people come together to share uh, meaning and symbolism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Recently, my, my grandfather passed away and our entire family, we didn't call it a funeral. We called it a celebration of life. And we, uh, right. we all got together, told stories. There was so much laughter. And even afterwards, the, the funeral directors and whatnot, they're like, that was incredible. The, so many amazing stories and like everyone was like laughing and having a great time. That was a celebration of life. And, and there are different ways to do it. And everyone is right. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Ireland, they have the keeners who go to the side of the streets and just wail and scream for hours and hours. In Tibet, they have the sky burial where they cut you up into little pieces and put you on a, a cliff face so the, so the uh, birds will come and pick off your, your flesh and fly you off into the sky. In the Yanomami in South America, they cremate their loved ones into an ash and mix it into a banana paste and drink it so that they bury their loved ones within themselves. So their loved ones are within them forever. Wow. In New Orleans, they go out into the streets and play music and march through the streets and dance and celebrate. Uh, and so uh, every group all over the world has a different way of celebrating, mourning, coming together. And, and it speaks to their vision of what it is to be human. Wow. Wow. So many, so many magical moments right there because if that's what they believe is the best way for, for them to, you know, accept it and to move on. And 
it's just the magic of belief. I think, you know, if you believe something enough, you make it real. So Paul, throughout your life, you've uh, experienced so much, but I want you to imagine just for a moment that, you know, all the people that you met, every person that has known you, somehow their minds just got erased of you. Yeah. Magically, right. Like a, like a magician maybe did it. Okay. And you now have an opportunity to reverse that spell, so to speak, by presenting, doing, creating something that screams, I am Paul Draper. What is, what is that thing that makes you so you? So I'm turning up and down the sound so we don't get that echo back and forth. Okay. Uh, that is a very hard question because I have tried in my life. You know, the, the anthropologist is the professional stranger. The anthropologist says, and the, and the endless child. So I'm going to show up into your culture and society and everything I know and do is wrong. Everything I eat, everything I celebrate is wrong. What you do is right. So I'm going to uh, learn from you and learn from your culture and society. When you are an actor, uh, you put on the hat and the clothing and the face and the words of someone else uh, and bring them to life with your own life experiences and what you've seen, what you've done. As a magician, uh, you are creating magic, not for yourself, but magic for other people so that you can see the fireworks in their eyes when they experience the magic. Um, in my alone time, I'm watching musical theater shows and operas and classic television and reading books on uh, uh, magic and folklore and anthropology and religion. Um, so, I mean, and, and like I said, when I travel zoos, museums, and art galleries, uh, I'm not sure that there's the one thing I could do for everyone that would say, this is Paul Draper. I, I don't think that I have the um, brand of, I am the man of masks. I am the man with four legs. I am the uh, man who produces cigarettes. I am the man with the floating violin. Uh, I don't think I have that sort of clarity of brand. E even my look uh, to to different generations, I am uh, Pavarotti, uh, Mr. Belvedere, uh, you know, uh, even Chumley from Pawn Stars. Uh, I I have tried to show up, figure out what people need, what stories they need to hear, and I tried to provide that. So if suddenly everybody's mind was erased instead of implanting me into them, I would try and do like Alfred Lord Tennyson said in Ulysses of, I am a part of all that I have met. I would try and find out who they are and incorporate that into me. Interesting. Very good answer. I love that. Incredible. Okay. Paul, I just want to take a quick moment just to say, I appreciate you because the amount of information you're, you're sharing with the podcast and myself, the audience here, it's, it's, I can't thank you enough. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So Paul, what was your largest 
challenge that you've had to face in your career so far? And how did you overcome that? Well, my largest challenge is constant. It's every day. That, that's one of the problems, the great problems with being a magician is you are out of work every day. Uh, if, you become, if you become a physician, uh, you are a physician in this healthcare system today, tomorrow, the next day. You have a job unless you have a private practice and you only have one patient. Uh, as a magician, uh, I think I'm still getting feedback. I'm sorry about that. No problem. I'll turn this down again. As a magician, uh, after every show, you are looking for a new job. Um, now, certainly, the 2008 crash when I left, uh, the, started to leave the Venetian was hard. Uh, the, this pandemic right here, where I've had to pivot to do online live shows, but like people have seen, I've been doing lots of them, corporate shows for Hewlett Packard, Sotheby's, uh, Bentley, uh, and also, uh, you know, dozens of family shows every week. Mm -hmm. uh, the hardest thing for me is to stay constantly alert, aware, alive, and being ready to accept changes as they happen, uh, to realize that I'm a person who's not saying, you must see what I do, but instead being a person that says, how can I fulfill your needs? Where are the needs out there? Where can I be? If right now the need is we need an MC at corporate events, I can do that. If the need is we need to sell a product at the trade show, I can do that. If what the need is, uh, we need to engage the children at Disneyland. That's been one of my joys lately is performing um, four days a month at Disneyland. And that audience is very honest because they don't have to stay for the show. They can go to Disneyland. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't like what I'm doing, Peter Pan and Indiana Jones and star Wars are right there. And, uh, and so that show has to really fulfill their needs and have as much joy and wonder and fun and adventure as all of those things. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You have to hold their attention and just be exactly what they need in that moment. Now, hmm. I really want to ask how you do that, but I feel like that is the art behind everything is being able to, uh, you know, have the experience to go test a few things here and there and like really hone, hone your craft for let's, let's say Disney as the example, right? Now, Paul, if you, you know, you have to get reactions every 30 seconds, you have to, uh, and a joke is as good as a magic trick. Uh, if I perform a piece of magic, boom, it appears. That gets a reaction. If I say a joke that they laugh, that's as good as the magic trick. If I juggle, if I sing a song, if I tell a story, every 30 seconds, if I can get an audible reaction from the audience, that's as good as a magic trick. Would you call that like uh, laughs per minute sort of thing? But you, you, you just tighten. You tighten and tighten and tighten. A lot of people say you cut, but I don't cut. I do like Dr. Robert Parker says, I clarify. You clarify the moment. You say, what will make this moment more clear to the audience? What will make this joke more clear? So, so like, 
There's a joke I use right now about a UFC fighting champion named Ronda Rousey. Yes. And she, uh, I was on the Hallmark Channel and she threw me and I was tossed. <laughs> and it would be easy to get up on stage and say, so I was on the Hallmark Channel and here I am and I'm with this UFC fighting champion. They're cage fighters and her name's Ronda Rousey and she was really pretty and or is really pretty and she's was a television star and you know blah 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 and I'm a big strong guy and I did uh wrestling in high school and martial arts in college and yet she was able to throw me and I called my high school wrestling coach and I said you didn't train me to defend myself and <laughs> he said you just didn't practice enough right that's a fine story if we're at dinner together as friends yeah but if I'm saying it on stage it has to say it has to be I was recently on the Hallmark Channel with UFC fighting champion Ronda Rousey. Wow. I performed this piece of magic for her. She said, that makes me so mad I want to throw you. <laughs> I said, uh, after your last fight, that ain't going to happen. And then she threw me. <laughs> it was the most embarrassing moment of my life. And now it's on YouTube forever. That is the clearest mm. that information can come out yes. and still get multiple reactions and multiple laughs. It doesn't in the context of one-on-one -on -one listening to this podcast mm -hmm. because you know that I'm being performative and not conversational. But on stage where the entire show yes. is that tone, the audience laughs. So it's, it's about clarity of communication mm -hmm. and saying, as Einstein said, make it as simple as possible but no simpler because if you make it too simpler than as simple as possible, you've broken it. Mm, I see where is a good place for somebody to start to learn more about that, about simplifying storytelling. Oh, I mean, buy books on comedy writing, comedy writing, uh, join improv classes, hire comedy writers to, work on your shows and tighten your scripts, uh, perform at open mic nights, perform with improv troops, uh, perform 10,000 shows mm -hmm. and then perform another 10,000 Tighten every day. My motto is continuous improvement every day, every show, there's something that needs to be improved for tomorrow's show. Live a life of continuous improvement. The show is never good enough ever. If you are, if you are um, a star on Broadway performing for 200 people a night, go get a spot on The Tonight Show performing for 10 million people. Mm -hmm. And once you've been on, it's not good enough. Get four more spots on that show. And that's not good enough. Become the host of that show. And that's not good enough. Be the host of a second show. Look at careers like Paul Daniels, who at some points in his life, he was on four television shows a week. Whoa. Okay. Okay. So always continuously push towards the next. You know, it, once you achieve a goal, make a new one. To be better at giving to others. Not better at taking from, mm. but better at giving, giving others what they need. Yes. Love it. All right, Paul, can you perhaps give us some recommendations on, it, it could be magic related, it could be, you know, 
performance based, but can you give us maybe some tangible book titles that that we can dive into and and start our next journey in education? Oh, sure, sure. So my favorite way to give you this would be join my Patreon for five dollars. Yes. Patreon.com slash Paul Draper. And I have an updated list in my Patreon. Uh, it's five dollars. You can get that list and lots of other content that I'm creating. Five dollars. Five. But uh, if you don't want to do that, look at the archives of the Society of American Magicians. And about three years ago, I wrote a list like that in there. If you don't want to look at the archives of the Society of American Magicians and support them, so you don't want to support me or support them, you can go to Penguin Magic. And there's a pay page on the uh, bottom of the left-hand side of the page called Theory and History that lists some of my favorite magic books that I think I wrote back in 2003 uh, but that hasn't been updated, and you can see that for free. If you don't want to support an online venue like Penguin Magic by going there and spending nothing, uh, write me an email personally, and I will talk with you about my favorite magic books right now, and I will do that for you. Awesome. Awesome. Yes, everybody go check out Paul Draper's website, his Patreon, and recently on Penguin, you just released uh, a really informative information um a piece about online production so to be about able to 72 hours ago i released a video on how to create your own production studio for under 200 dollars, and the goal of that was i let them set the price and decide what they wanted to charge for it uh, i wanted to just charge five bucks for it so that anybody could have access to it and if you don't want to pay the 15 dollars on penguin you can go to my Patreon page at paul at patreon.com slash Paul Draper for $5. And that video isn't there, but there are segments that have most of the information that's on that video that's on there. So that's another way to do it. But I released that on Penguin to, because I hear so many magicians saying they're out of work, they're struggling, they don't know how to make a living right now. And there are people, uh, Robert Strong is offering a $100 seminar on how to set up a professional studio. Uh, uh, Brad Ross is setting up a, a three-day workshop for students of how to set up a professional studio. Jeff McBride, Larry Haas, and Tobias Beckwith have put to, uh, together a $149 three-day class for people to learn about how to create a professional studio and what to perform. Uh, but I wanted people who couldn't afford that to be able to have information to get up and running right now with things they had in their house right now. Uh, and so again, just trying to give myself away. So uh, that I think has sold a hundred units in the last 72 hours. Wow. Uh, but you can go there. You can go to my Patreon. You can write me personally and I'll help you. Excellent. I, I love how, how so willing you are to, to just give and help. It's a uh, very inspiring, very inspiring We're a family that where did that come from? Have you just raised to be like that? If you want to be successful in this life, this is it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, success is about the people we surround ourselves with, uh, and life is about giving ourselves away to others. Um, for me, that is you know, Eugene Berger had the great line that life is about this constant balance between uh, fear and courage, courage to overcome the fear. 
But my perspective is that life is about connection with other people um, to build something better than there was before. I love it. Now, Paul, I, I know that uh, we're probably getting to the point where we need to wrap it up because you're, okay. you're such a busy person, a busy yeah. magician doing all this online stuff. So before, before we send this off, I have one more question for you. And that's where can, well, actually two more questions then. Okay. And I think we kind of answered one of them, but so the first one is uh, what or who performed your favorite magical piece? I just talked about this on a podcast with Eric Tate oh. uh, for Penguin Magic. He interviewed Banachek, but it opened with my five favorite effects in magic. And so that's another podcast you can go over and listen to that you'll love. Eric Tate. But right now, uh, yeah, Eric Tate on Penguin Magic released it. And it's actually, a, I gave two, one, but the one this is on is with Banachek. Uh, but who's fabulous. But my favorite magic effect to date right now that I have seen is David Copperfield, uh, the li the license plate and the uh, car appearance. My favorite one that I have uh, participated in is Juan Tamaris uh, had me uh, call my grandmother and had her think of a card and he was able to produce it in an unbelievable way. Wow. Legends right there. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, Paul. Uh, final question for you is we kind of went through it already, but where can people find you? Let's just list off all the best places to contact you. My webpage is mentalmysteries.com. My agent friendly one is mental mystery. My old webpage, realmagic.org, still takes you over to mental mysteries. You can find me on Facebook. I also have a Facebook fan page, an Instagram page where I think I'm Paul W. Draper instead of Paul Draper. I have a Twitter, I have a, a Patreon, a, a Pinterest, a TikTok, uh, I try a LinkedIn. Uh, I try and be available on all the sites. I, I even have a MySpace that I. I think it's been about 10 years since I looked at it, but it's still there. <laughs> so so uh, there, whatever time period you're watching this in, unless I'm in the ground, in which case you should come and leave a rock on my gravestone because I was so nice to share all of this information in life. Uh, there are ways to find me in whatever the current means are. Get out your Ouija board. I will haunt you. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming out onto the Magician's Code podcast. And yeah, man, I mean, thank you so much. Stay well. Talk to you soon. That was Paul Draper, the amazing mentalist, magician, entertainer in so many different aspects. So much information and knowledge. I, I have to dive into this work right now. I need to start implementing his teachings right now. So I'm going to leave the podcast. Thank you so much for your guys' time and attention. And a huge thanks to Paul for coming out on the podcast here and educating us and sharing some amazing stories with us on The Magician's Code. So without further ado, guys, thank you once again. Be sure to head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Hadlin if you want to support The Magician's Code. And we'll see you on the next episode. Have a good day, everybody.